0: Thank you for joining us for the Teacher, Servant, King message series. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has to say to us today. And please give a warm welcome to Pastor Bob Shalon. Have you were around uh, in November? We had a message series that kind of centered a little bit around the topic of vulnerability. And uh, I wanted to do my best to try to lead out in that today. And wanted to share with you about uh, a condition that I suffer from called FOMO. Some of you know it's a, it's a real thing. FOMO, it's an acronym for fear of missing out. And you might, you might not think that that's a real thing, but it is a real thing because I found it on the Urban Dictionary on the web. And here's the definition of FOMO. The fear that if you miss a party or event, you will miss out on something great. It's a very real thing. I knew that I had signs of this in my life when I was in college because uh, in that season of my life, I really wanted to be one of those early to bed, early to rise kind of guys. And so uh, long before my roommates were heading to bed, I would, I would get in, in bed, but I would always just hear them out there in the living room talking. And then if I would listen really closely, I could hear them start to hatch a plan that they're gonna go do something fun. And in, inside, I'm just thinking, I just wanna stay here in bed. I just wanna go to sleep. But then one of them would pop their head in and it wouldn't matter what it is that they were planning on doing. They could just come in, stick their head in and say, hey, do you wanna get some cheesy fries at Perkins? Be like, yeah, I will. Because I just know that if I don't go, it's gonna be that time that something awesome happens and they're gonna talk about it for the rest of college and I'm gonna completely miss out on it. I won't even understand all their inside jokes about that. I still have this today. In fact, When I'm here at the office at Journey, there'll be times where there'll be people laughing down the hallway and I've got to just like grab my desk and say, you know, it doesn't matter what they're laughing about. I don't have to know what they're laughing about. But sometimes if it goes on for too long and I've actually done this, actually step into their office and say, hey guys, I'm kind of having a flare up here of my FOMO. Uh, Could you guys knock that off for a while? Because you don't want to miss out. If there's something that you're you're afraid that you're gonna miss out, you want to be a part of it. And so we're asking the question, what if I miss out? You know know what makes FOMO a very real thing for us is that the truth is, is that you're making choices all the time about your life. You're making choices about what am I gonna give my time to? What am I gonna give my energy to? What am I gonna give my whole life to? And here's what's tricky about that. For us to say yes to something oftentimes by definition means that we say no to something else, or maybe even a lot of other things we end up saying no to. If I take this job opportunity over there, it means that I have to say no to any other job opportunity over here. If I make this financial investment, it means that I can't make this myriad of other financial investments over here. But what if I miss out? What if this was the good one over here? What if I marry him? What if I marry her? Then by definition, I'm telling to billions of people in the world, I can't marry you. And now they're gonna miss out. <laughs> what if I stay in this marriage? What if I stick it out? Cause this is hard. Am I gonna miss out on something if I stay in this marriage? When we say yes to something, it means that we've got to say no to something else. And friends, there's no bigger question that we can ask in our life than this. What if I make Jesus the king of my life? What if I make Jesus the king of my life? What if I take Jesus and my relationship with him and I put it at the center of everything? I make my life about this king and his kingdom, everything else, moves around that. I don't just add Jesus to my life. as kind of this thing on the periphery, but I make Jesus central to everything in my life. Is that gonna cause me to miss out on something in this world? If I say yes to Jesus in that way, what am I saying no to? Am I gonna miss out? I think about all the years that I spent talking to college students about Christ and trying to make the case that walking into a relationship with him and receiving that forgiveness that he offers, making him your king, making your life about his kingdom is the best decision you could ever make. And there were so many times that they would sit across the table and they would nod their head. and They say, you know, I agree with you, but not now. I'll do that later in life. And here's what they were saying. They were saying in a certain sense, they've got FOMO. There's this fear of missing out. If I do that, I'm gonna miss out on something in life. I'm young. I wanna do my thing now. I'll do that later. But you know what? That can be true for all of us, can't it? Because we know oftentimes what it means for us to make Jesus the center of our life, to make him the king, to make everything else in life revolve around him. But so many times we say, you know, I'll get to that later. You know, I've got so many things I'm trying to get squared away in my career right now. And man, there's just so much going on with my kids and stuff right now. It's just, I, I can't get to it. I will get to that one day. But friends, the question remains, what is going to be central in our life? Who is going to be the king of our life, really? Who's going to really be the king of our life? And I don't think that there's a better time on the calendar to evaluate that than right now at Christmas. Because what we're celebrating on our Christian calendar is the reality that this king, not just a king, the king, the king of kings, came to earth. Came to earth to show himself to us, to show us what life looks like when God lives here on this earth. He came to us. And friends, he is the king And what he's going to do is he's going to begin establishing, he did begin to establish his kingdom and he invites us to be a part of that. You see, hundreds of years before Jesus even came on the scene, the prophets of old talked about this king that was going to come. And Isaiah, in very specific terms, in Isaiah chapter 9, talks about this king that was coming. And this is kind of one of the most famous Christmas passages that we read probably every year. Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse six and seven. This is the framework that the prophets put in the minds of the people of this coming king, what he was gonna be like. Starting in verse six, it says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. It's just that picture of the king. He's gonna carry the government. But there's something unique about this king, Isaiah says. It says, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Did you catch those two names there in the middle? Mighty God, everlasting father. Isaiah's saying this isn't just anyone. This isn't just any king. This is God himself. Those are names of God. And then he goes on to say, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. His reign is gonna be forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Forever, friends. His kingdom will last forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If you were a Jewish person for centuries, you heard Talk of this king that was coming, this Messiah that was going to come. And so often in their minds, they had this picture of an earthly king that was going to come and establish his kingdom in the way other kingdoms had been established that they had seen before. They were going to drive out their enemies, and they were going to rule in peace on this earth. That's the kind of picture of a king they had in their mind. Jesus did not fit the picture of what they thought was coming. Because Jesus, that king, Jesus as the king and his kingdom came in a completely unexpected way. And his kingdom, as we start to see, is completely upside down from what you would normally expect. He was born in a manger. We sing about that. He was surrounded by shepherds, people of absolutely no consequence in the culture. He was born into poverty, not wealth. His unwed mother was a peasant girl. His unwed mother, single mom. That scandal and stigma would follow him throughout his life. There was no sense of consequence, no, just born into absolute obscurity. This is not the way you would expect God, the king, to make his entrance into earth. So this is what we've got to understand is Jesus is trying to help us understand that this king and his kingdom are very, very different and very, very unexpected. And to understand the difference between what we would expect a kingdom to look like and Jesus as king, we're going to look through the lens of the gospel writer, Mark. And one of the central themes of the book of Mark is this idea is that Jesus is the king. And so he makes the case that Jesus is in the king, but throughout the book, he's sharing these things because he wants to persuade us. Jesus is the king, but make him the king of your life. Don't bow your knee to other kings in this world. Bow your knee to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Mark starts in chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. He's making the case from the very beginning. This is the king. This is who Isaiah talked about. He's come. And then to the very end of his book, in Mark chapter 15, he says this, reflecting on the death of Jesus. He says, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark, from beginning to end, he's trying to make the case, guys, Gals, Jesus, he is the king. And I wanna highlight something from Mark chapter six. Contrast a couple of stories. Oftentimes when we think about how the gospel writers wrote the story, we can think that they just wrote everything chronologically. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But oftentimes the gospel writers can actually write the the gospel narrative in a way that you'd write a movie where they wanna hold up a couple of scenes that maybe didn't happen right chronologically next to each other, but they want to hold two things up because they want to make a contrast between two things. And that's what I think Mark is doing right here in Mark chapter six. He's holding up this picture of two kings, two kingdoms, and two parties. And what I want us to do is, and buckle in, we're going to read a lot of scripture here because I want you to catch the flow of both of these stories. But there's a contrast that we've got to see between these two different kings and these two different parties. The first party I would call is King Herod's party. And up until this point, the disciples and Jesus are seeing the kingdom of God break in in the world. As they're moving from place to place, the things that are evident that God's kingdom is breaking in is that there's powerful preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God and lives are being changed. There's healing. People's bodies are being healed. Their souls are being healed. And there's places where they're casting out demons right and left because when the kingdom of Jesus comes, the light of the kingdom, darkness, flees. So these are the things that we see happening right up until the time of this scene one that I call Herod's party. So if the curtain opens, scene one is Herod's party. Mark chapter six, starting in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, meaning the kingdom of God breaking in, For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. Now I've got to tell you, Herod, he did not like the thought that Jesus could be John the Baptist, come back to life. And here's why. Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, comma, whom I beheaded, comma, has been raised from the dead. Now imagine if he was saying that or writing it, it would be like one of those emojis with the, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, what's the deal? Is this John the Baptist come back to life? That is not a good thing for me. For Herod himself, verse 17, had given orders To have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, I want to give you just a a little snapshot or a little picture of Herod Antipas. He was a colonial ruler for Rome, he was to oversee the region of Judea. But kind of the the big idea for him was just keep the peace there. Just keep the peace. Don't stir up the people. Don't do anything stupid that are going to get the people riled up. Well, Herod did something very stupid. He broke Jewish law by marrying his brother's wife. But it wasn't just that this was his brother's wife. This was actually his niece that his brother was married to. So he has this incestuous relationship by marriage and it just stirs up all the people there. And John is publicly denouncing this day in and day out, calling him out. And this ticked off Herod's wife, Herodias. And here's what her response is. Verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Why? Why wasn't she able to kill him? Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. He liked to listen to him. He liked to listen to John, but he didn't like to obey the things that John was saying. But he also makes it worse He throws a party And here's what happens Verse 21 Finally the opportune time came On his birthday Herod gave a banquet For his high officials And military commanders And the leading men of Galilee When the daughter of Herodias Came in and danced She pleased Herod And his dinner guest So you see Kind of get the picture Of who Herod is here He marries his niece, that's bad enough, but he also does this. He brings in her daughter, his stepdaughter, to dance before him and his guests at this party. And and just so you know, you're probably getting the picture here, but this isn't a cute little tap dance by this girl coming in that pleased Herod. It's as bad as it sounds, a bunch of dirty old men bringing in a girl to dance for them. And here's Herod's response to her dance. The king said to the girl, "Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you." And he promised her with an oath, "Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom." That's a euphemism for "Ask big. I'm going to be generous. Go big or go home. Ask me for anything that you want." So she went out and she said to her mother, "What shall I ask for?" The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. In front of everyone, she says, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod's stuck. Now Herod is absolutely stuck. He's made this great boast before all these friends that I will give you anything up to half my kingdom But the request made before him is to kill someone that he knows is a righteous and holy man. And he likes John. Even though John is denouncing him, he likes him. But the sad part for Herod is that image is everything. It matters to him more what other people think about him than that he do the right thing as as it relates to John. So this is what happens. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths, And the dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. Quite a party favor, huh? On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The curtains close, and that's the end of scene one, Herod's party. But there's a different party that's also going on in this world, and the curtains open up as we start the next story, the next party that I would call the Jesus party, and this is a completely different party, a completely different king. This party that we're going to talk about, often we refer to it as the feeding of the 5,000. And there was something that was really interesting to me as I did some study on this. This is one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. And I think oftentimes in our mind, we get this picture that it was really just kind of about a picnic. People were just kind of following Jesus along and then suddenly it got time to eat some dinner. So we just laid out our, you know, our red and white tablecloths and sat down on the grass to have a picnic it wasn't a picnic that was on the mind of these people that were there, these men that were there. The end of the story, it says that the number that were fed were about 5,000 men. And all the time that I've, I've heard this story talked about over and over, people would say, well, oftentimes they would just count the head of the household. And so there were probably women and children there as well. And so maybe there's as many as 20,000 people that Jesus fed that day, which like, like 5,000 isn't enough, 20,000. But what Tim Keller helped me understand was that there was a reason why it was 5,000 men in his opinion. And he cites John, John's account of this same story in John chapter six. This is what Jesus makes note of. In verse 15, he says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, the idea is that the reason that it was 5,000 men were there because they weren't looking for a picnic. They were looking for a revolution. They were ready to turn things upside down. We're going to turn the Roman Empire on its head. We're going to defeat our enemies. Jesus is going to be that king that we've longed for that's going to set up this earthly rule that drives out our enemies. That's what they were looking for. But Jesus wants them to understand he's a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of party. Here's the story of Jesus' party. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They've been working hard, it's time to rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place because they wanted rest. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So all these people are there waiting for them. So when Jesus landed and he sees the large crowd, he rolls his eyes, looks at his disciples and just say, let's just get out of here. It's too many people. It's time to rest. Nope, not exactly. Scripture says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he, so he began teaching them many things. You know, there's not a, a record here of Jesus' teachings or sermon at this time. But I would bet my house that what Jesus taught them is what his kingdom is like. And how it's different from the kingdom that they're thinking that they're going to establish by force. They needed to understand that my kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is an upside-down kingdom. My party is a very different party than the party of this world. And he wanted them to understand, how do you live out the values of my kingdom in this world? So verse 35, it goes on. It says, by this time, after they'd heard Jesus teach, by this time it was late in the day, So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now I was thinking about this big conference that Jesus is having with these 5,000 that are there. And I assumed it was probably like kind of their equivalent of the GLS, the, the Galilee Leadership Summit. All these people that are there And here's what I think the disciples are wanting Jesus to do. What they're going to say is like, Jesus, could you make sure that everybody checks their program and sees that dinner is on your own? You know, this is not part of the conference fee. Dinner is on your own. Send them away. I wish I could see the look on Jesus' face as he responded to them. Because I always just kind of get this picture that Jesus had like a little bit of a grin on his face as he looked at them and he said, you give them something to eat. Well, then they said to him, that would be more than a year and a half, more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And then Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? He asks, go and see. When they found out, they said, five. And two fish, 5,000 people. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the bread, broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 Basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. And then the curtains close. The end of scene two, the Jesus party. You see what Mark's done here? He's given us a picture two kings, two kingdoms, two parties. And here's the reality, friends. These two parties are still happening today. Both of these parties are happening around around us every day. What I want to do is let's just reflect back again and just show a little bit of the contrast between these two different parties that are taking place. One in the Herod's party. Who gets invited to the Herod party? It's the rich. It's the influential. It's the powerful It's all about status. It's the who's who. You gotta pay to play if you wanna be a part of the Herod party. When it says who was invited, it says it was the high officials, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. And you know what? When Herod throws a party, it wasn't because he loved the guests and he wanted to serve them. He wanted them to serve him because as you bring in this party with all these highfalutin people, it props up you and your power. It was all about him and his power. See, in this party, Herod was at the, at the center of the, everything. He was the center of the universe, not everybody else. And it was just so obvious in this party, image was everything. You just think about what happened between him and John the Baptist. He knew that John was a righteous and holy man, but because he was worried about what people thought about him. He had his head brought to the party on a platter. You see, in in the Herod party, people are just pawns. You use people to get what you want in life. That's the Herod party. Friends, you know this party, don't you? This is, in a lot of ways, this is the world that we live in around us. We're not there to serve people. People are there to serve us. But Jesus would say there's a very different party going on, my kingdom party, and the Jesus party is a different story. Who gets invited to the Jesus party? Everyone gets invited to the Jesus party. There is no one on planet Earth that is off the guest list to the Jesus party. All you need to do is move toward Jesus, move toward where He is. And you know, sometimes He'll just massively move toward you because He wants you at His party. And you notice in the Jesus party, the guests didn't serve Him. What did He do? He served the guests. It was all about them. And He invited those that were closest with Him to be a part of that. Join me in the party. It is so fun to serve other people. Make your life about them. Give your life for others. That's what my party is like. He shares the authority with others. And I just think about what it would have felt like, the difference between those two parties. And one, it was all about status and performance. You know, what makes me valuable? You know, what what if I'm not a leading official next year? Will I not get invited to the party? In the Jesus party, everyone's invited. There's a sense of worthiness and acceptance that is just incredible that Jesus just says, come, come to me, be a part of my party. And to me, this is the best part about the Jesus party. He didn't kill his enemies. Jesus didn't kill his enemies at the party. In fact, in the Jesus party, he lets his enemies kill him he doesn't kill his enemies he lets his enemies kill him why why would he do that because he wants to make his enemies his friends that's the jesus party who does that that makes absolutely no sense at all who does that who would give their life so that they could make their enemies their friends jesus would that's who because he's the king he's the true king and his party is the true party. And he invites all of us to be a part of it. He is the real king. But like I said before, both of these parties are still happening today. And every day we're making decisions. What party are we going to be a part of? Are we going to be a part of the Jesus kingdom party? Or are we going to be a part of the party of this world? And you know, as I read and studied and wrote this, There were parts in my life where I just thought my heart was breaking because I thought, you know, there's a lot of the Herod party in me. There's a lot of time in my life that I want to be the center of the universe. I want people to serve me more than I want to serve other people. I see that in me. There are days that I just think I want the pleasures of this world more than I want to serve God. That's the honest truth. And when I thought about it, I can be just like Herod. I cannot do the thing that I know that God would want me to do for no other reason than I'm just a little bit afraid of what people might think of me. And so I choose to dip my toe in the Herod party versus throwing myself headlong into the Jesus party. There's that tug of war. Am I going to miss out? If I grab a hold of the things in the Jesus party, am I going to miss out on some other things in life? And as I read through this, there was one thing that I just just kept thinking about over and over again. And that was Herod Antipas, And what a tragedy it was. I just couldn't shake the thought of him. And this is what was hard for me. Herod knew the truth. He knew the truth, but he never responded to it. And I just want to highlight verses 19 and 20 again. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. And then verse 20 says this, because Herod feared John. Herod feared John. And this fear that we're talking about here, it's not like this cowering, I'm afraid of John. He's not afraid of John. I mean, he's got John in prison for crying out loud. He's not afraid of him. That fear that he's talking about there, it's a it's a sense of awe, a reverential awe about this man. There's something different about this guy. There's something different going on in him. He beats to a different drum. There's something completely different about him. And because of that, it says that Herod protected John. Even though he was in prison, he protected him because he knew him to be a righteous and holy man. Even though Herod's life was completely opposite of that, he knew what John was about. He was a righteous and holy man. And then it says, when Herod heard John He was greatly puzzled. That word there we could even use that there was something going on in his heart. He was puzzled. He was conflicted. He was confused, probably even convicted because there's just a rightness. When John talks about the king and the kingdom, there's a rightness about it. And lastly, it says, he liked to listen to him. Isn't that interesting? Herod liked to listen to John, even though he was just saying everything Herod that you're about is wrong. There was something about it that was attractive to Herod. But you know what? He never responded to it. He never decided to be a part of the Jesus party. And as I reflected on that, I just had this fear like, I, I think that we can be like that, friends. I think that's a scary place to be, that we can be around the things of the kingdom, hearing the things of the kingdom and even liking to hear the things of the kingdom but never throwing ourselves headlong at the feet of the king and into his kingdom. I started to think about my own life and what it was like growing up. My mom was a, just a, an awesome follower of Christ and she wanted to do everything she could to help me become a follower of Christ. So she would take me to church with her and we had to drive a long ways to, to get to church, but she would take me to hear some great Bible teaching. And I gotta admit that I liked it. I liked to go. I didn't like to miss football all the time on Sunday mornings, but I liked hearing the message. There was something about it that was attractive to me. But for a big chunk of my life, I would leave those times and I would just walk away and do life myself. I wanted to live my life my way. I just could see that I was so much like Herod. I liked to hear about those things, but I was never willing to dive in. There was this fear of missing out If I truly throw my life headlong into the kingdom of God, am I gonna miss out? Is there something that I'm going to miss? And here's what Jesus tries to explain to us: is that when we really get it, when we really understand who the king is, what the king is like, what are the values of his kingdom? What starts to happen in us is that picture grows so big that our fear isn't of missing out on the things of this earth, missing out on the things of the Herod party. Our fear becomes, am I going to miss out something in God's kingdom? Am I going to miss on something that God would want for me? And we're willing to say completely, I don't want this. I want to move toward him. And that's when God enters our life and begins to change us from the inside out, that fear of missing the kingdom. And Jesus explained it this way. In Matthew 13, he said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. When he found it, when he really found it, when he saw what it really was, it says he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought the field. Do you get that picture? When you really see who the king is and what his kingdom is really about, We'll sell everything. We won't hold on to anything in this world. We'll move toward him and his kingdom. And Jesus continued, he said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. The picture of the kingdom, it's worth everything. And as I sit here, I've just been thinking about and over this week as I've been, I just wanna be a part of the Jesus party. I don't want to tether any more of my life to the things of this world. In fact, I've just been asking God, what, what other things do I need to let go of? I don't, want to just, I don't want to just dip my toe into your kingdom. I want to just dive in. I want to be a part of it because there's two parties going on right now. And friends, the greatest invitation that you have is to be a part of the Jesus party. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to say with everything in me, you are worth it. The more I get to know you, the more I know what you're like, the more I understand what your kingdom is like, Jesus, the more my heart wants it. Jesus, I just want to say, I believe that. Lord, would you help me with my unbelief? God, would you help me and would you help my friends? Here, if there are things in our lives that are tethering us to this world, that are tethering us, to the Herod party. God, would you in your great kindness, would you show us what that is? We want to walk away from it. We don't want to be stuck in that anymore. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the greatest invitation to be a part of your party. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your powerful and risen name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net. give Thanks.